Well, good morning. Thought I was going to have to scream, but uh, I was muted, so fix that. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. Um, man, it was so good last week. I don't know how many of you were able to join us last week out at Hartwood, but um, what a deep, encouraging time we had as a church, just to be able to celebrate 13 baptisms. So if you weren't there, we had had 13 people uh, profess their faith publicly through baptism, and, and that was a really significant day in the life of those 13. But I'll be honest, I think it was a pretty significant day in the life of our young church as well. That was a really special time. Um, but I'm going to be honest with you, I woke up Monday morning pretty giddy to open up the book of Acts again, so um, I'm pretty excited. So I hope you can handle how excited I am this morning. But Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, and before I read it, let me share with you a couple of things that I think could be really helpful for us that will aid us in our understanding and the study of the book of Acts. Um, it's really easy when we read narrative, which is what the book of Acts is, the genre is historical narrative. It's really easy for us to read narrative, which is, which is just a story, as if it just happened overnight, right? To really think that, that chapter one was one day, chapter two was another day. But Acts chapter six is actually about three to five years in to the early church, about three to five years post-Pentecost. And that's really helpful for us, right? Because we would be led to assume that this massive growth that has happened seemingly overnight was actually overnight when it wasn't. It, it really happened over about three to five years. And I wanted to share that because I just want to encourage us that the gospel doesn't just move and transform lives through, through the fireworks, right, of the miraculous. That what we don't see in this narrative is just the faithful day-to-day -day living out of the gospel and living as witnesses as the body of Christ, right? So, so be encouraged that God works not just in the fireworks, but he also works just in the monotony of life as we seek to live for his glory in all that we do. So the book of Acts spans about 30 years of church history, and today we're going to look at approximately three to five years in to the early church. So let me read the first seven verses, because unfortunately Coleman has about two chapters to preach next week, so I get seven verses. I'm really thankful for that. So now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, con uh, whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and lay laid their hands on them. Verse 7, and the word of God continued. Right? God's story continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, so let me give you kind of our roadmap today. What we're finding here in Acts chapter 6 is another problem, right? It's another problem that has coming within the church. So we're going to look at that problem, and then we're going to look at the solution. But here's the points for that. The problem is growth and grumbling, okay? Staying with my alliteration, growth and grumbling. The solution is declaration and delegation at the hands of the apostles. So we're going to break those down, growth and grumbling. So let's begin in growth. Verse 1, Luke writes, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. So in these days, that means when the growth was coming to the church. Now, mild estimates would put the size of the church at this time at about 30,000 people. Right? That is ginormous. That's a huge church, all gathered there in Jerusalem. 
And that growth, y'all, as we've seen through the book of Acts, was just a consequence of the faithful preaching and the devotion to prayer of this early church. Preaching and prayer. And I want to say it, preaching and prayer are the growth engines of the church. Preaching and prayer are the growth engines of the church. That's what the apostles have been faithful to in the previous three to five years. Remember, I'm going to walk us through Acts 1 through 6 real quick. Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended, but after he had resurrected, he spoke with the apostles for 40 days about the kingdom of God to ensure that they had clarity, they really comprehended the gospel so they could communicate that as witnesses. He commissioned them in Acts 1.8 to be witnesses of that gospel. In Acts 1, they also gathered to pray. They devoted themselves to prayer so that the power of the Holy Spirit would come and empower their witnessing. Acts 2, we know on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fell, empowered them to do what? To preach. And Peter did. On the day of Pentecost, he preached, and 3,000 came to the Lord in one day. At the end of chapter 2, what do we find the church doing? Gathering and devoting themselves to the preaching and to the prayers. Let me keep going. I'll just keep going real quick. Acts 3, Peter preaches. Then he's arrested for that preaching. Inevitably, he's released, and the church gathers in Acts 4, and they pray for what? Boldness to keep preaching the gospel. And as we saw two weeks ago, if you remember we were in this room, in Acts chapter 5, they're arrested again, beaten again for preaching. And look at me in Acts 5 verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Preaching and prayer have been the growth engines of this early church. But that's not what we hear in in modern day church planting wisdom. Y'all, there's a lot of business, good practices out there about how to scale a business that we try to apply to the church. And I'll be honest, I don't think we should neglect that wisdom. There's a lot of good things in there, but let's not get it twisted. We cannot put our hope or our faith in those practices because it's preaching of the gospel and it's prayer that drives the growth of the church. So things like marketing and advertising and good social media campaigns, professional worship, et cetera, et cetera, you fill in the blank. Those are good things that can aid the growth of the church, but we cannot put our faith or our hope in those things. It's the preaching of the gospel, and it's prayer that grows the church. Missionary pastor and evangelist Paul Washer, if you ever heard him, made this comment. It deeply impacted me about a decade ago. He said, the more you trust in the arm of the flesh, the less we see of the power of God. The more we trust in the arm of the flesh, the less we see of the power of God. The more we put our hope in whatever we can do to grow our church, the less we will then see of God's power. And what is God's power? Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The preaching of the gospel, devoting ourselves to prayer, that is the growth engine of the church. And, and we saw throughout Acts, there's great growth. 30,000 people gathered in Jerusalem in this one church. First Baptist Jerusalem, 30,000 people. But as we've seen also, y'all, Satan hates the growth of the church. He hates it. We, we've seen that he tries to destroy the growth of the church through persecution. And what happened? It only became more powerful. We've seen that Satan tries to destroy it from within with sin through Ananias and Sapphira. And what happened to the church? It only became more pure. But what we see here in Acts, I'm going to make the bold statement that I think is Satan's deadliest attack on the church yet. Grumbling. Grumbling. Complaining, murmuring, grumbling. Y'all, a spirit of grumbling and complaining kills way more churches than persecution. So let's look then at this grumbling. Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint 
by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's the context here? What led to this complaint? Before I dissect that complaint, what led to it? I've already mentioned it. It's point one. It's growth. Growth provided the context for this issue, for this growth. And we all know, y'all, that in, in any industry, whether it's a business, whether it's a home, you add a new baby to a home, whether it's the church, when, when growth happens, it provides a situation for some complexity, right? Some administrative problems begin to get exposed. That's true. It's true in the church. James Clear, an author and entrepreneur, he wrote the book Atomic Habits, if you ever heard of it. He, he said that we never rise to the level of our goals, we tend to fall to the level of our systems. Right? And some of you administrative engineering type people are like, yeah, amen. You know? We always fall to the level of our systems. And that, that's, that's just startup entrepreneurship 101. Right? Regardless of the venture, you always fall to the level of your systems. But right now, we as a church, and as the church in Jerusalem, there for the first three to five years, they were just in startup mode. They're making decisions from the hip. This is a wild, wild west. They're teaching, preaching. People from the villages are coming in to get healed. They are busy just doing what God had asked them to do. But when growth starts to happen, it begins to reveal your lack of systems, right? That type of decision-making can't sustain that growth. So growth reveals problems, and that's really what's going on here. In the days when the disciples were increasing in number, Someone's needs were being overlooked, or in this word, neglected. So let's, let's break down then the complaint. What was the grumbling about? So in that early church, we had about 30,000 people, mostly Jews, if not all Jews, okay? But even within the Jewish church there in Jerusalem, you had, you had distinctions linguistically, culturally, and even ethnically, okay? Where the first group we see here is the Hellenists. So that, that word Hellenist is just Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians who speak Greek. They were individuals or families that had probably left the land of Palestine, that local area, generations ago. And now, because they're good Jews, they're moving back to Jerusalem, maybe for festivals, maybe for, for different religious um, celebrations. Or what we read from history is that a lot of the widows would actually move back to Jerusalem to see out their last days in the holy city to be closer to the temple, to be closer to what they believe the presence of God to be. So these Hellenist Jews, they were Greek-speaking. And archaeology shows that in the city of Jerusalem, there were hundreds of Greek-speaking synagogues in that city. This is a big part of Jerusalem, Greek-speaking Jewish people or Jewish Christians. But we also have another group here, right? The Hellenists complained, and it rose against the Hebrews. Probably a majority of the church was localized people from the land of Palestine, people that spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, local Jewish Christians. So within the church, within that 30,000, we have linguistic and cultural and ethnic barriers. And evidently, what was really happening was the widows of the Hellenists were, were being neglected. They weren't receiving their fair portion of the daily distribution. You all have to remember, there's no Medicaid, right? No Medicare, no retirement, no um, insurance, no pensions. And these widows who had moved from the Greek-speaking Roman Empire back to Jerusalem are far away from friends, far away from family. So without that family, without that proximity, these widows were fully dependent upon the church to meet those daily needs. And you know, this is a, church, this is a responsibility of the church that they took seriously. Remember in Acts 4 when it said that there was no need among them? They were, their generosity was really providing for all these needs. But again, as, as growth happens... It begins to reveal some needs that were overlooked. So let's look at that Greek word real quick, the word neglected. 
So a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That Greek word suggests that that overlooking is not intentional. There's not a heart to go, you know what, we should just, we should just not give them what they, you know, what they need. It's not intentional. Their heart was for them. We saw in Acts chapter 4, the heart of the apostles was to meet every need within the church. This is not an intentional. It was just a consequence of their size. Growth happens. And evidently, some needs tend to go over, uh, uh, overlooked. And y'all, I just want to take a quick second and, and really make sure we're aware that Satan is an opportunist. Satan is an opportunist. He's looking for opportunities just like this. If you don't believe me, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, after Jesus withstood that temptation, what we read is that Satan left Jesus until the next opportune time, right? Now, that's a unique opportunity to tempt Jesus, because why? He's in the wilderness, all by himself, alone and isolated, away from community, away from accountability. He's hungry. Y'all been fasting for like a meal, doing some intermittent fasting? Get a little hungry. 40 days, right? Jesus was fasting for 40 days. He was hungry. That's a good opportunity to be tempted into sin. And, and Satan saw that. Satan's an opportunist. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 27, that we should give no opportunity to the devil. That Greek word opportunity is foothold. If, if I were to go to one of these doors back here and I were just to crack it just enough to get my foot in, that's what we're trying to visualize here. Just, just enough space for me to get my foot in. That's what Satan wants in your life. That's what he wants in the church. Just give him enough space so maybe he can wiggle his way into the entire building. Opportunity. Satan's an opportunist. And here, this, this grumbling, this situation has really provided an opportunity. There was already an ethnic, cultural, linguistic gap. And now that these Hellenists are being neglected, and regardless of intention, it's a recipe for dissent. Right? It's a recipe for this complaining. So what is this complaining? What is the grumbling? I'm going to teach you a Greek word because it's been really fun for me to say um, by myself as I prepare. So I want you to learn this. Okay? This word for complaint is the word gagusmas. Isn't that kind of fun to say? Gagusmas. It's, it's really not just a complaint. It's a prevailing murmuring. It, it's something that's been talked about for a while among a lot of people. It's really spreading. It's a grumbling that is happening. I read one commentator say, there's nothing more soul-destroying to a pastor or to a church than a bunch of God goosemasters. It's this complaining, this, this grumbling. Evidently, this was an issue that was growing and spreading among the ranks of the church. Y'all, this is lethal. This is lethal to a church. This is lethal to a community. Let me, let me break it down. I like to put it this way. Um, we all have bruises, right, that we carry in life. We all have bruises. I'm not talking about physical, visible bruises. I'm talking about internal, emotional, spiritual bruises. Things we carry into life with our, from our family of origins, things that happen throughout life, we all have these bruises. Now, if I had a physical, visible bruise on my shoulder, and I was at Kroger, Coleman saw me and just, you know, slapped me on the arm to say, hey, and I just, I react and I flinch. Maybe even put my hands up because that hurt, right? And he's thinking the whole time, why? Why would he respond that way? Like, why such an overreaction? It's because he hit my bruise. He bumped my bruise. He had no idea it was there, but my reaction revealed that it was there. Okay? So just as we have physical bruises, we have these spiritual, emotional bruises. And Satan, the opportunist, will take a bump, even if it's unintentional. He'll take a bump, and he'll begin whispering. Something like this. I can envision him whispering to these Hellenists, saying things like this. They don't care for you. They only care, they only care for their own. They only care for the Hebrew Aramaic speaking. You're a widow. You're alone. 
Nobody's going to meet your need. Who's going to care for you? Then all of a sudden this thought comes in. You know what? You should start your own church. You should start your Greek speaking. We should form a congregation of the Hellenists. Then we'll be cared for. Then these things won't happen. That's what happens all the time. All throughout congregations. All throughout churches. This happens. This bruise gets bumped. And the church begins to murmur. We swallow whatever Satan begins to whisper. Hook, line, and sinker. And we become a bunch of God goose monsters. It happens. Our bruise has been bumped and we begin to grumble. For this early church, it was the daily distribution that created that. What would it be for you? Like, like what have I done as your new pastor to bump potential bruise for you? What has our new church done that has potentially bumped a bruise? What about your spouse, right? Kids, coworkers, bosses, neighbors, it, it doesn't matter, right? In every interpersonal relationship we have, this opportunity exists. But I just want to say there's a choice here. For you, for, for us, there's a choice. Anytime a bruise gets bumped, there's a choice. Patrick Lencioni, if you know anything about leadership, you've heard of his name. Okay, So Patrick Lencioni talks about this bridge of trust. And he makes this point that in any interpersonal relationship, whether it's church, pastor, brother, sister in Christ, spouse, kids, it doesn't matter. Any interpersonal relationship, for that relationship to exist, there has to be a bridge of trust. right? A bridge that built of trust. But when bruises get bumped... Inevitably, miscommunications, misinterpretations, maybe even ill-intended things happen, and it creates a gap in that bridge, right? So now there's just a little bit of a gap. In that moment, we all have a choice. We can fill that gap with what Lencioni calls trust. We can assume the best about somebody. We can, we can deal with our own bruise and let love cover a multitude of somebody's sins. We can grow unoffendable, right, and fill that gap with that trust so that we bridge that up. Or we can fill that with what he calls suspicion, with, with maybe dealing into our bruises and, and starting to lean in and get defensive, and we can start murmuring, right? We can start talking to other people about that, and inevitably what happens is that that gap grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you have sides, and that's what exactly the church has here in Acts chapter 6. There's, there's sides beginning to form. Because of this grumbling, we have the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. It's a perfect recipe for dissent, for resentment, and disunity. But what is encouraging is, is not just that this, this grumbling is dealt with, but it's, it's dealt with pretty swiftly. Verse 2, let's look at how the apostles respond to this. And, and I just want to say, I found it really interesting. You know who usually is the last person to hear the grumbling? Those that are in charge, right? Those that have actually some authority to do something about it. But eventually that grumbling makes its way to the apostles. And let's look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right, so now we kind of have this, this solution. Let's start with a, a declaration. And really before they do that, I just want to say I'm encouraged by the apostles' leadership here. It breathed some wind into my sails because he went toward it. How many other ways could they have dealt with this? Like, let's think about your own life. When there's tension in relationships for you, how do you tend to deal with it, right? We have those who hate conflict. If you're in that group, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Hate conflict. So you ignore it, right? You embrace passivity and go, if I just act like it's not there, it'll go away. And what happens to molehills when we try to ignore them? No, do not go away. They become mountains, right? You say, these apostles, they could have ignored it and pray it goes away, but they didn't. They could have dismissed it, 
right? Some of us who are engaged in conflict enjoy conflict. Anybody know? Some of you are bumping your spouses, you know? The tendency then is to, to just dismiss it. Like, if I were the apostle, I'll be honest, I'd be tempted to do this. I'd be like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I'm busting my tail, preaching and teaching. The healing ministry is going nuts. There's people from all these villages coming in to get healed. Not to mention that I'm still healing up from Acts chapter 5 from those 39 lashes I received from persecution, right? And now you want to complain about the Meals on Wheels program? Like, that's where we are, you know? That probably would be my temptation is to just dismiss it, to think that that's just really beneath what's going on here. But, man, I'm encouraged. It's just not what the apostles did. They didn't ignore it. They didn't dismiss it. They immediately addressed the issue. Verse 12, and how they do it? They summoned the full number of the disciples. That's encouraging. And that's, that's kind of scary. Because they didn't just go to those that were complaining. Why? Because the complaining had moved its way throughout the entire congregation. This is now a congregational issue. So he fu- summons the full number. But, and, and before we jump to this declaration, I just want to say, church, just because the apostles were busy with, with a lot of different things, it didn't mean that the growing needs of a growing church should go unmet. Okay, I'm going to say that again. doesn't mean that the growing needs of a growing church should go unmet. They met those needs, but, but it's interesting how they did it. They did it with a declaration. They summoned the 12, I mean, they summoned the full number and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, Upon first reading that, you may think, that's pretty calloused. Like, I thought you said they care about these widows. Why would they say something like, hey, it's not right? Well, if you, if you really translate in the original language, that not right means it would not be pleasing to God. It means it would be, and I'd be disobedient to the command of the Lord if I were to give up what He has asked me to do in order to meet the needs of this daily distribution. And y'all, there's some deep truths we could all learn from that declaration. What I find in this declaration is it shows that they possessed crystal clear clarity on what God had asked them to do. They owned, they knew what God had asked them to do specifically, and they stuck to it. Church, if we don't possess that type of clarity, regardless of your vocation, like I'm not talking about any kind of sacred or secular vocation, those don't exist. Everything that you do is sacred. It's unto the Lord. Okay, so I'm not talking about vocational, but if we could possess, if we don't possess that clarity as to what God has dictated for us or asked us to do, we're always going to bow to the tyranny of the urgent. You ever heard that phrase? We're always going to bow to the tyranny of the urgent. Every time we say yes to something, we inevitably say no to something else. Isn't that right? Like, think about that for a second. Every time we say yes to something, we're always going to be saying no to something else. If the apostles were saying, you know what, we'll do it. We'll take over the daily distribution and we'll do this thing. What that means is they would have inevitably said no to preaching and to the ministry of prayer and the word. I believe that this is one of the highest reasons that pastoral burnout in the clergy is at an all-time high. I think it's because pastors have, have gotten so involved in every initiative, every program, every ministry. And y'all, those are good things. The growing church has growing needs that should be met. But what happens is pastors say yes to owning and driving and and, and being responsible for all of them. And they get outside of that core responsibility of preaching and of prayer, and eventually they burn out. But what, what encourages me personally about this is that's just not what we see in the life of Jesus. Like as Christians, we need to follow our Lord. How did he do how how did he deal with this? This is a remarkable statement, okay? Jesus, John chapter 17, verse 4, before he's arrested, before he's betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he begins to pray. In verse 4, he prays this unbelievable statement. He says, Father, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. 
He's approximately, what, 33 years old? Could you say that? Like, what a remarkable statement. He prays, Father, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Let's break that down. Had Jesus healed every infirmity and sickness and deformity? Had he raised all of the dead? Had he fed all of the hungry? Had he saved all of the people? No. But yet he was still able to kneel and say, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. It's a remarkable statement. We get so distracted by saying yes to a bunch of things that really aren't for us. Things that God hasn't asked us to own. And we get out of alignment with that primary calling and, and, and live into burnout, especially as clergy, as pastors. But I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't think it's the only reason. I think that, that unrealistic expectations of churches on pastors is a reason that leads to pastoral burnout. These expectations that could have been on the apostles here to say, you've got to own this, you've got to solve this, that can lead to burnout. This was almost Annie and I's story. When we knew that we weren't going back to the mission field, but God was calling us to pastor the local church, we interviewed with about four different churches. Some were church plants, some were church revitalizations, which were churches that were on decline. Some were established churches, and there was one in particular that we really sensed maybe this, this could be where God's calling us. And I went to this interview, and I sat down, and, and man, the search committee was just precious gentle, godly people, and I asked them, what do, you, what do you expect of your pastor? What are the needs that you guys have as a church? And, and truly, with pure hearts, they begin to say things like, well, we have an older congregation, so we need our pastor to be on call for hospital visitations, an important ministry. Okay? But the hospital was about 45 minutes away. Then they went on and said, well, football is king in our city. <clears throat> I don't know where else that would be. Football is king in our city, so we need our pastor involved in the community. Make sure you get all Friday night games. Um, our deacons have been at each other's throats for about 600 years. Um, we need you to lead that and bring some unity to that team. Not to mention, we need you to preach on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, and probably Wednesday evenings. We had a great food pantry before COVID. We need that up and running, so bring some leadership to that. We have a bivocational youth pastor, um, so we need you to support the youth by attending all the youth events. And to top it off, they said this, um, we need you to, to play and organize on our church softball team. <laughs> you know, and I've told you how competitive I am, and I was like, P.S., yes. You know, And then the more I thought about it, I was like, PPS, no, because I don't like church-sponsored events because some of y'all don't know how to act, okay? <laughs> so I get in the car, and I'm driving home from that interview, and I just kind of start talking to the Lord and go, Lord, like, I really love these people. There's something in my heart for these people, but how would I, how would I be the person of prayer that I feel you called to be if those were the expectations placed on me? I thought, Lord, I know you've called me to be a husband that doesn't cheat on my wife with this mistress called the church. How could I ever do that if that was the expectations put on me? I have four kids, eight, six, four, and two, and I know you've called me to be a present and available dad. How could I do that if that's what was being asked? So I ended up saying no to that church, and I'm thankful that God, through his grace, provided that level of clarity. See, the calling in that expectation, it was just incompatible with it, who I think God's called me to be and who he's asked me to be. Stephen Covey, another leadership guru, says that true inner peace comes when our calendars reflect our values. I, I change it to say I think true joy, peace, and satisfaction comes when our calendars reflect who God's called us to be or what he has called us to do. Now, again, I'm not talking about vocationally. I'm just talking about have you gotten alone with God and say, God, who have you asked me to be? What are the responsibilities you have entrusted to me? And then the second question is, am I saying yes to that or am I saying yes to all these urgent things that inevitably lead me to say no to that? Guys, I'm, I'm worried about us, not just as a culture, not generally speaking as an American church. I'm worried about us here 
as a congregation, y'all, we are so busy, right? I am, we are so busy. And yet we wonder why joy, peace, and satisfaction consistently eludes us. I wonder if it's, and I'm not trying to dismiss, and definitely not overgeneralizing, but I wonder if it's because we've let the urgent crowd out what's most important for us. I wonder if not part of maybe that, that lack of joy, lack of peace, is just because we're not even aware, maybe, of what God has primarily asked of us. But what encourages me here, Acts chapter 6, going back to our text, is that the apostles knew. In their declaration, what we see is clarity in what God had called them to do. So they issue that declaration, but, but let's not stop there. They move on to verse 3, and they issue a delegation. They issue the declaration to say, we're not going to do this. This is not something God has asked us to do, but therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the uh, spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now again, he did not ignore, he did not dismiss. Instead, they delegated. And the reason they delegated is because the daily distribution, although not a core responsibility of the apostles, is a core responsibility of the church. So they delegated it. And I emphasize... That, that word distribution, because in the Greek it's diokonia, which really means ministration or ministry. So verse 1, when it says, uh, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That word distribution is diokonia. It means ministry. They were being neglected in this ministry. And I want to emphasize that because in verse 4, when the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, it's the same Greek word. And what I find there is that both of these ministries are given by God. That both of these ministries are important and essential ministries of this church. They're given by God, performed for God with a heart unto God. But they were four different people. They weren't for the same people. Although certain people, the apostles, were called to the ministry of prayer and the word, others within the church were to be called to the ministry of this daily distribution. It's a beautiful picture of how the church works, isn't it? It's the same for us today. I cannot, Coleman cannot, our elders cannot, nor should not drive or own every program, ministry, or initiative of our church. It would not be right. It would not be pleasing to God. It would not be obedient to God. However, Ephesians 4 says, one of my responsibilities is to make sure we are equipping the saints for the work of various ministries in order to build up the church. So what has to happen in this passage and in our church is delegation. But you're not just anybody. Although we're a church plant, y'all, we're not looking for just warm bodies. We, 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 there's more qualifications than just a pulse, okay? What we see here is the apostles look for men that were of good repute, full of the Spirit. Y'all, the ministries of the church, they're spiritual work. We need the Spirit to be able to, to accomplish them, and they need to be full of wisdom, able to solve practical problems. So the apostles proposed this solution in the form of delegation. He laid out all the qualifications, and the congregation made the selection. And I'll go pretty quick here, although we could talk more. We're going we're to talk about Stephen and Philip over the next couple of weeks. But the congregation chose seven. Okay, let's read their names again. Stephen and Philip. They're listed first because Luke's going to really build their characters out over the next couple chapters. Then we have Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. Y'all, what is super interesting about these seven names, they're all Greek names. They're not Hebrew. They're not Aramaic names. They chose what we're led to believe seven Hellenist Christians. 
Isn't that, isn't that phenomenal that the church would do that? That's wise. They, they nominated them because they'd be better suited to meet the needs and to communicate the plans uh, for these Hellenist widows. Makes a ton of sense why the church would choose those seven. So they nominated these seven. Ultimately, the apostles come together and, and pray for them and lay their hands and confirm that appointment. And let's look at verse 7. Although growth led to grumbling and the declaration led to delegation, what we actually find, what the ultimate aim is of solving this problem is that the word of God would continue to increase, that the number of disciples would multiply greatly and a great many of the priests would become obedient to the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? And y'all, we want to be a church that continues to grow, not because we care anything for numbers. Let me just be very clear. Not because we care about a number, but we care about souls being ignited on fire with the truth of the gospel of Christ. That's what we care about, and that's what we want to see. And the early church wanted that as well. And, and just like the early church, we have to be strong in our de- declaration. We have to be strong, and this is who God's called us to be. We have to be wise in the delegation. But, but honestly, congregationally, we all have to play our part in, in, in being careful with that grumbling. It's just really easy to do. And the biggest takeaway I really want to leave you with this morning is, personally, are you aware of who God's asked you to be? Are you aware of who He has called you to be, what He has asked you to do? Are you saying no to what needs to be said no to? Are you ensuring that you're saying yes to what God's called you to do? And when we function individually, and I believe corporately within those principles, we're going to grow deeper and wider individually and corporately as well. So, we're going to transition now. Um, sermon's kind of over. We're actually going to move into a time of communion. Uh, this is another opportunity for us to respond to the gospel. So if any of our people are serving communion, I'd love for you to go ahead and move to your spots. And I'm going to kind of set that up for us and lead us through that time of communion. Um, let me take a second just to kind of communicate what it is and, and how we do it here as a church, because this may be the first time for many of you. Um, we take communion, or what others deem the Lord's Supper, uh, once a month here at CBC Richmond Hill. Okay, so once a month. Communion is an ordinance that was instated by Jesus himself um, at the Last Supper, you know, the night that he was betrayed, and he shared this meal with his closest disciples right before he was betrayed and, and ultimately crucified. So it's a tradition and a sacrament that the church has had um, for since the beginning. And it's for those, listen carefully, it's for those who have put their faith in Christ and been saved by His grace. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to kindly and gently ask you to let the elements kind of pass by you. But on the night that Jesus instituted communion, um, it was a really somber moment. Um, he was sitting with His apostles and He took some bread, most, most likely like He did every night, and He broke that bread and He says, listen, this is my body that is broken for you. And then he took a cup of wine and he, he poured that for each of them and said, hey, this is my blood that was shed for you. And he made this, this statement. He says, when you take communion, so for us today, when we take communion, do it in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus said. Take it in remembrance of me. So you guys can go ahead and start passing out if you'd like. And so as you take the elements this morning, um, try to remember Jesus. Try to take him at his word and, and really remember Jesus. Remember his death for our sins. Remember his body that was broken for us. Um, to remember his blood that was shed for us. You know, the juice that you hold, the, the matzah that you hold, these are just visible reminders of Christ's love for us. So, communion is a time to remember Christ, but it's also a time to commune, as the word would say, to commune, to get still for a second. Right, we just talked about how busy we are. You're already thinking about what's for lunch, 
or what's going on this afternoon. I don't know what the NFL slate is. You know, I'm not sure. But right now, it's a time just to slow down, just to get still before the Lord and really examine our lives and to remember His life. So take a moment to do that. And then after the, all the elements are passed out, I'll lead us through uh, taking of it. So if you guys want to play, it'd be great. needs um, gluten-free wafers, if you'll just raise your hand, we'll make sure one of our team members makes it to you as well. So take a minute, continue to reflect and examine. chapter 22 as we uh, partake of this meal together. So Luke 22, verse 9 says, And Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Won't you stand with me? Let me pray for us, and then our team will lead us through another song of response. Father, we are deeply grateful um, for your life, um, for your body that was broken for us, for your blood that was shed for us. Thank you that we are now new creations through your grace and faith in you. What a wonderful privilege to be called your sons, called your daughters. And um, let us pray that we would live lives that continue to reflect the goodness of the gospel that was just made um, visible for us in, in these elements of bread and of, of juice. God, pray for this church. Pray that you continue to build us up, build each of us individually, the people of this church, um, so they may live lives worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.